It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Sinatra, there's a name, and a legacy. And my guest will be performing a unique part of that legacy, the Las Vegas of 1966. He's award-winning, multi-platinum-selling singer Matt Dusk. He's performing two shows in Myron's Cabaret Jazz at the Smith Center this Saturday, February 18th at 6 and 8.30 p.m. And for ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com. And for everything about Matt Boy, I'm, I'm losing it, Matt. Everything about Matt Dusk, go to mattdusk.com and follow him on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and also Spotify, too. So, Matt, welcome to the show. I haven't seen you in a while. So good to be back in virtual Vegas. <laughs> I feel like I'm right with you. Excellent. All right. First question out of the bag. What was your first memory of Sinatra? Wow. First memory. It has to be probably when I was uh, a little kid at Christmas time. My parents would always drag me out to my grandparents' house. And I could remember just on this one Christmas Eve, there, you know, you, you, they open the door and there's a smell of fried onions and butter. And my grandma's in the kitchen. My, my grandfather comes and offers my parents drinks. And on the old hi fi stereo, I was playing none other than Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby. And it was my favorite record uh, as a kid growing up. And I like at, at Christmas time, and I remember when um, that record came to my end, to the end, I was around six or seven. I said to my grandfather, I said, play it again, play it again. And he's like, no way, kid, I got something better for you. <laughs> and he goes through, he goes over the hi-fi, starts going through all the, the, the racked up labels or the, the vinyl jackets. He's like, nope, nope. And he pulls out this is not a word of a lie. He pulls out Ozzy Osbourne. Okay. <laughs> so, so, but here's the thing is that he had lost the jacket to one of his favorite Sinatra records and he threw out the Ozzy Osbourne jacket and put that in <laughs> and he puts it on. And as soon as I heard it from the first note, uh, I, I, I was hooked and I still have that album he gave me with the Ozzy Osbourne jacket. <laughs> Could you even imagine at that stage? I know when you first started out, you were you were going to study economics because you wanted to get into your family's business. But you know, you took a side trip, including to Las Vegas, where I first met you at the Las Vegas Hilton. And now you're coming back to the Smith Center, as we mentioned. I think the Smith Center is a perfect venue for you. Yeah, I love Myron's. Uh, I think we played there a couple times before in that hall. So when we come back in February, I think both shows are already sold out. Well, I don't out, know that you want to in, call it a hall. That sounds like a major, major, yeah, huge Yeah, it's bigger space. than my living room. Yeah, <laughs> it's very, it's very cozy. But, but rooms like that are kind of a thing of the past. Like we, when myself and my band, we tour all over the world, you know, we're playing like, you know, the larger Smith Center Theater where, you know, we got a thousand, two, three thousand seats. But, you know, the way I started was in the nightclubs and in the jazz clubs. And, you know, as a kid growing up watching, you know, kind of these old recordings of Las Vegas, you know, you would see these have these cabaret shows where there would be tables and people could eat and drink, and there'd be smoking. And 
you know, that's what I love so much about Myron's is because it's, it's, it's a rare, rare thing. I don't know many places like that are in the States. And the sound is great too. So it's phenomenal. They have one of the best sound systems and their crew is top notch. Yeah, no, exactly. So I'm delighted that we had a chance to reconnect, especially for your upcoming appearance. When you put together this, we should mention to our audience, those who may not know, You've put out two Sinatra albums, Volume 1 and yeah. Volume 2. That's how I know there's two of them, because one's Volume 1 and one's Volume 2. Yeah, too many songs. Yeah. You could do like 10. <laughs> you think you're going to do a Volume 3 at some point? It, you know, it's a good question. I mean, this album was never actually supposed to come out. It's, I think it was like 2019. I had been on the road for uh, a bunch of years singing this kind of music. I got you under my skin, fly me to the moon, blah, 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 blah. I never really captured it you know, live off the floor. So I think it was May of 2019. I just said, okay, we're going to do this project. I called up every single best player I knew in town. Luckily, you know, all of them said no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they were all available. They were all available. And I said, okay, we're going to do this in two weeks. Everyone's available. We came in. I remember my, my engineer was late. Uh, I didn't know how many songs I brought, you know, 17 charts. I would be like happy if we could get seven done. Right. Not even joking. By 5.30, we had recorded 17 songs live off the floor. And it was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had on the floor. Because, you know, when you're recording, there's so much manipulation. Oh, we got to get this right. right. But because a lot of the guys that were in my band had either played with Sinatra or played these songs, these chestnuts forever, by the break, you know, I brought three or four bottles of scotch to, you know, <laughs> to celebrate. I said, screw it, let's go in. One of, the, one, of the, one of the best experiences. And then the pandemic hit and my manager goes, hey, do you still got that Sinatra record that you just, re-? I was like, yeah, he's like, dude, everyone's longing for the past. Let's put it out. And, um, you know, it's I'm very proud of it. The guys did a phenomenal job. You know, Matt, you could almost pass for an American, except when you say the word out, and then a I boot. catch that Canadian. A boot. Yes. Out to I the boot. I catch it. <laughs> How do you retain? Because I always thought jazz singers, and I know that they call you a crooner too, and I wasn't sure how to introduce you. Which do you like better for future reference, singer or crooner? I like crooner just because I come from that school, but apparently people think it's dated. But uh, you know what? This music isn't exactly Justin Bieber either. So, <laughs> so <laughs> when we end this, I'm going to say crooner because I started Perfect. with singer, so that'll work out. We'll have it balanced both ways. The modern are you are we going to be doing a d- duet at the Smith Center? Is that what you're trying to like? <laughs> I got to pay you like a, a okay, artist yeah. fee. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Now, how is it that you, as a jazz crooner, are able to maintain a sense of humor? You've always had that. And I always think of most jazz crooners and singers and performers as a little bit more serious. I'm not sure why I perceive performers that way in the world of jazz, but I do. But you always are the exception to what I think is the rule, and I may be wrong. You know, it's interesting when the imaging and branding, you know, record labels have an idea and they want something smoldering and brooding. And these images get put out because that's what they use for publicity, because apparently it's cool. Where, you know, I was a kid, I grew up in a, you know, all boys Catholic school. So we were always joking around, always doing, you know, crazy stuff. And, but from my, from my opinion, you know, what attracted me so much to Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, all the rest of them, was that there you were going to see music, but you were more going to see 
What are they going to do? How are they going to make me laugh? How are they going to entertain me? Because not only is this music like romantic and deep and soulful, but there is a tremendous history of entertainment behind it. Right. And I, I mean, I, I, I have to admit the scotch helps, but not this early in the morning. <laughs> I do want to get back for a moment because you said you, you were able to knock out all those songs in one yeah. day and you didn't think you were going to be able to do it. So now I'm thinking, okay, did you rush through it and leave all the mistakes in or no, they're just perfect? So How's I that think for a leading question. It's a good, very, very good question. No one's actually asked, actually asked me this question. So in my opinion, what makes you know, the classics so great and why we, why Sinatra still matters, why big band music still matters is because you had the recordings we hear are, are, are obviously full of mistakes, not, not intentional, but the thing is, is they didn't have the technology that modern artists have today where you can be in control. So part of, part of that, part of those bumps actually created a vibe that made it more real. And I think I think that's why myself and other crooners still kind of have careers is because still are missing that real factor when it comes to music where there's, you know, tens of thousands of hours put in. There's lots of preparation. But again, because these guys have played these charts for so long, you know, it's kind of like riding a bike. And when you have, you know, some of the guys in my band were, you know, 60, 70, so they've been doing them for 50 years. For them, it was the first time where they could sit that back and just go, uh, this chart. I love this chart. You know? I think there's also a warmth that you miss when you have it so digitally altered. You don't get the sense of the performance. You don't, because the interesting thing is, especially when, you know, a lot again, getting back to modern recording, a lot of it is recorded in parts specifically since the pandemic hit because we couldn't go into recording studios so you know like all right i'm gonna send the files to this guy the drummer's gonna play it then we're gonna put the bass player then da, 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 da. when you put you know 17 people in a room there is this communication is like where does the meter sit where does the swing sit make sure the guys aren't falling behind if one is you say to him okay let's, let's push it up and when you get that communication in, in a room, it literally is like a freight train. It just goes. And that's the one thing about these recordings, especially, you know, the Basie recordings, for example. That's why we always go back to them, because they were a freight train. Right. And also when Sinatra recorded, most of the time, I think there was only one or two exceptions when he did the duets albums. But he was in front of the orchestra or the band, yes. at, usually at Capitol Records or in other, some other studios as well, obviously. And so that there is that difference. And didn't you record not necessarily your two Sinatra albums, but didn't you record one of your albums at Capitol and with Al Schmidt? Yes, yes, Al Schmidt, Pat Williams, because Al Sammy was an Nessic, Sammy Nessico as well. Yeah, um, Al, Schmidt, I mean, Al Schmidt was an engineer with Sinatra, and so to be able to yes. use him for yours. I funny story. I remember, so it was 2006 uh, when we did that record down at Capitol, and uh, Pat Williams, who was obviously one of the arrangers that worked with uh, Frank, him and Al Schmidt took myself and my friend out to, to, I believe it was Morton's, and to have like a little bit of a dinner and to get to know each other. And, you know, having the two there talk to me about the whole Sinatra duets record. And what I remember Al, Al said just before we started, after the wine came, not Al, sorry, it's Pat said, he said, um, I'd, like to, I'd like to make a toast that Sinatra made with us. 
at dinner. And he raised his glass and he says, gentlemen, to us, we are the best. And I was just like, wow, like that was just it's such a welcoming thing into such history, right? Because here I am, a 24-year-old kid, completely no idea what I'm doing. And yet they made me feel comfortable to be able to go there and at least just be myself, for better or for worse. How is it you're able, because I met you in the early 2000s, or the middle 2000s, I guess, or middle to late 2000s. I'll get it right. I'm very bad (laughs) with math, Matt. But you... I can't even say age gracefully because you don't seem to age. You just seem like that guy I knew then that the kid, the kid. Yeah. And you don't, you don't, you have not adopted any cynicism that I can see as well. well, And you've been on the road and all of that. So you could technically, but. Well, there there definitely is cynicism. I mean, in any industry that you work in, um, I think when you're very young and as you know, we all started somewhere. And when we all start from somewhere, we literally start from the bottom and we start to climb. And, you know, what's very interesting about that as as you climb more and more, you develop, a, you know, a sort of a sense of entitlement and you develop some hubris, right? Because you're like, oh, I went to this step. Oh, I'm going to go to this step. And I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not saying this to name drop, but it was something that was very, very influential to me. I, uh, back around that same time, I got to spend time with Paul Anka. And Paul Anka, we were uh, a fellow Canadian, you know, geez, still going, still doing shows. Yeah, and, it's true. you know, he, 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 he said to me, he's like, getting to the top is nothing. Going down and up and down and up and down and up. Talk to me then. And, you know, there's, there's been moments in, in my career, and I'm sure yours, I'm sure other people, where you start to think, is this viable? Do I want to do this? And then sure enough, you stick through it. And that's, that's, that's the traveling road of a musician. I mean, that's, or any certain person like yourself who's in arts or being creative, we always ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Right. <laughs> yeah, I could be, it could be relaxing or doing something more meaningful, maybe such as saving people's lives, but you're doing yeah. something meaningful. You're entertaining people, which is important. And you're keeping alive. I want to go back to Sinatra. You're keep, one of the things of what you do that's important is you're keeping alive the legacy of Sinatra. There are other performers that do it as well, but the more the merrier is the way I look at it in the sense that he was such a, had such an impact on American culture particularly, but internationally as well, or as we like to yeah. say now globally, uh, for so many decades that the fact that you can, at your tender age, recognize that talent and pay a tribute and pay the songs tribute too, because yeah. it wasn't just Sinatra, it was the songs. It was a song. It was the arranger. It was the artist. There were many uh, serendipitous things that happened all at once. I mean, when when I do my shows, just to be crystal clear, is like there is one Sinatra. There will never be another. I, I, I myself, maybe it's just because I don't have focus for it, but I, I, I cannot imitate. I, I'm not a good impressionist. I always start by imitating, as I think we all do. We always look for guidance. Anything <laughs> we try. But over time, we start to develop our own thing. And what makes our show so great is the audience. Because the majority of the people that come to our show are familiar with Sinatra, or more specifically, are big fans of his and the music. And they bring into the show their memories, how they got through life with those songs. So when you meet people through touring, man, all you're doing is you're just... 
allowing people to express how they felt. Right. So it's like this could have been uh, my, my father and, and myself's first dance or my mom and mine's first dance. And everybody has a story. And that's why Sinatra is so important, because his music carries not only the, mu- not only the song, but people's personal memories. Do you find, too, and I ask this question a lot of my guests, do you find that in your performances that people bring their either their children or their grandchildren so they can experience what they did in a different way, obviously, because you're not Sinatra, you're Matt Dusk? Well, I think it's usually because they can't get a babysitter. (laughs) (laughs) You'll see that kid in the front row. (laughs) But, 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 um, I will say that uh, it's not uncommon to find a few uh, teenagers, you know, younger as also young adults, like, man, getting back to the young teenagers who, who, for some odd reason, they discovered this kind of music and they love it. Or what I find that's happened more recently, and you're going to laugh at this, you know, 10 to 15% of our audience is usually in their 20s. And they think it's a great time thing to go out and go to the bars and drink and then come in and be part of this like retro show. Right. So, I mean, I, I don't discount any age group as, as long as they are bringing fun, right? Yeah. That, that that's the whole thing. And, and, you know, on stage, we, we tell stories, I, I tell bad jokes, you know, but at the end of the day, at, at the end of the day, we're guarantee you, there'll be a, a standing ovation and people will be dancing because it's all about their time off. And you get a chance, you mentioned the 20 year olds, you get a chance to convert them into this kind of music. <laughs> well, they're, they're kind of already in the vinyl club, right? Yeah, that's true. Right. 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 So, so they're discovering their grandparents old collection and, oh, Frank. <laughs> and, 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 and think about it even now, like, so if we think about anybody, any crooner from the 60s, you know, anyone from Jack Jones uh, uh, to like uh, Al Martino, these guys were always dressed in tuxedos, looking handsome, holding a drink, smoking a cigarette. And, and there was something mysterious about that. So these kids are kind of going like, man, I hate my stupid iPhone. My data plan is over. I just want to listen to some music. I'm just disappointed, Matt, you didn't wear your tuxedo for this conversation. Yes. So <laughs> it would have helped. Now, you can also get the Matt Dusk book of bad jokes on his website, oh mattdusk.com. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and for those watching this on YouTube, I want to point out that your background is not phony like mine is. <laughs> I don't have any it's... albums to put on my wall. so <laughs> They're all from Uzbekistan. Gold is 200 copies. So. You got them on eBay or Etsy even, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Alibaba Express. There you yeah, go. exactly. So what are the biggest challenges? I'm going to throw you a curveball. What are the biggest challenges yeah. of touring? You are a family man. So how does that all work out? Because you're on the road a lot. Which, by the way, uh, is good when you think about the type of music that you croon and that you sing. Notice I put both yeah, of those in there that time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Croon and I'm sing. not the crooner. I think, I think one of the challenges is the, it, I mean, listen, uh, let, let's, talk, let's, let's talk honestly here. You're out at night. You're at nightclubs or you're at concert halls. There's alcohol involved. There's bad diets. You know, the, the, what I always say to people is that the most challenging thing about touring isn't the music. It's the people. So when I'm always putting a band together, it doesn't matter how good of a player you are. Can you hang and be cordial? Can you help out? Is it a good vibe? Because, you know, we're stuck like this, you know, sometimes we'll be on a tour bus, 
sometimes we'll be in a minivan. And it's it's not all glamorous. Like it's uh, we'll play anywhere, anytime, just because, again, I've explained it all. But uh, on the touring side, once you get past 100 shows a year, it's (laughs) 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 the same joke kind of gets boring. You know, Understood. understood. So what you're telling me is you do not have the Matt Dusk private jet. It's mostly Uh, Ubers and vans and SUVs and sometimes taxis. (laughs) <laughs> sometimes if I'm lucky, sometimes I got to walk. I have another question that I thought about that probably no one has asked you. And it may be a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it. Are your fellow Canadians surprised, your, your fellow Canadian artists surprised by your choice of jazz? And the reason I ask that is because jazz is generally thought of as a uniquely American musical genre. Interesting you should say that because I, 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 at least from my experience, you know, jazz has had its hard roots in Canada forever, just because, you know, Windsor, Windsor is very, very close to Detroit and Toronto is very, very close to uh, New York City. So, you know, you can drive to Windsor from Toronto in four hours. You can drive to New York City in, in eight hours. So there was always a ton of musicians from this area that were being influenced by the Northeast Sound. If, when you ask me the question, what about do other Canadian artists? What do they think? To be honest with you, I think most artists are selfish and don't give a crap. That's, <laughs> that's, what that's, anyone, that's legit. <laughs> you know, I was everyone's so about worried that. about you know about how they look. Right. You know? No, I know the Canadian border is close in a lot of areas in the United States to American cities. I just wondered whether that most Canadian, if not the Canadian artist community, but maybe just Canadians in general, see you performing an American institution jazz no not really man no. i mean th- if, let's think about let's go back in time right when even television came oh, out we matt, were we, matt in, dusk in canada a, matt dusk is about to school me and rightly so go ahead matt no 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 no. i mean we had we, we had like one national television station and the rest we we got picked up nbc abc cbs so when these shows are being aired i mean we had or not we but my my grandparents you know had four channels so <laughs> well, let me, let me rephrase show. the question your honor I understand that that's true, but nations are very parochial in a lot of sense, protective of their own (laughs) culture. So that's where I was going with, yes, I know that they can import a lot of material from America, both through TV signals, cable, and closeness to cities that are in America. But it was more the fact that you're seeing, again, a genre that's jazz versus something that would be more Canadian. That's where I was going with that. I didn't phrase it right the first time. So, so in regards to music, uh, yes, there definitely is rock and well, let's go back to, to like the 80s and 90s. Definitely more rock orientated, uh, even, even country. Jazz is, I think, in, in the music, like one to two percent of what people listen to in Canada. But with our 40 million people here and you're still going to grab, you know, 400,000 of them, right? Right. So I'll, right. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take it. I mean, yeah. But, Specifically, jazz. Here's 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 something that's kind of funny. People don't let, let's take the general population. General population will say that myself and other crooners are like myself. We're not jazz artists. We're pop artists. And everybody who's like loves jazz says uh, they're not jazz artists. They're pop artists. You know what I mean? Did I <laughs> yes. say that correctly? Right. So uh, we, we kind of we kind of fit in this middle because jazz is like or I'm singing like fly me to the moon, which is more like I think popular music. But right. uh, you can't win them all. 
No, 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 you can't. Tell us a little bit about the structure of your show at Myron's. Are you, how are you, how do you put it together? Because it's a, as we mentioned, it's a great intimate room. So you don't, yeah. you don't really have space for a 97 piece orchestra, nor do you want to pay that. So how, no. do you, <laughs> how, do you, how is it structured? And I know that you have some new arrangements as well for this. Yeah, it's, it's, so basically we have a, we have a small horn section. We got a rhythm section, which kind of fills out the harmony. And then we do songs that are pretty much from the catalog. Like the interesting thing about my show is it's, it's less about, uh, it's not a biopic, right. like, you know, in 1942, this happened. <laughs> it's more about the, the stories of how Sinatra or, or say, for example, in Las Vegas, how, how they shape my life and how, other people can can relate to that. But at the end of the day, the songs that we're doing are definitely from the Sinatra catalog, because unfortunately, that guy sang so many goddamn songs that it's hard to do. I think he recorded something like 1200 songs or something. And you, you can't go through that book without touching something he already did. Right. So right. it's definitely good. But you're doing some new arrangements as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for example, some of them from the... Uh, Capital session we did back with uh, Sammy Nestico and Pat Williams. Right. You know, it's it's nice to have those classic arrangements like the Nelson Riddle and the Billy May. Right. But but you know, both Pat and Sammy's are are right up there. And the truth is, people won't even know. They're just going to go, "Hey, that was a great arrangement and a great song." Right. Did it give you a sense of history when you recorded at Capitol Records? Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yes. You know, one of the first things I asked, I said, "Where is Frank's U forty <laughs> seven? <laughs> and, and and they brought it from the mic locker and they brought it up. I was like, it, it was pretty surreal. It's now, like the the if, if the hallways could tell stories. The, the most important question of that would be, did you record what they call warm? Because I, I did a tour of Capitol Records and, and they told me that a lot of rock bands, particularly when they record, initially they'll record on tape and then convert it digitally. I don't know if they're still doing it that way or not. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. It all went to Pro Tools. Okay, I gotcha. Because <laughs> uh, uh, just to say, because we're on a budget. Yeah. Right. No, if we had, if, you know, when you're when you're hiring, you know, fifty guys, uh, every minute counts. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. But some of the rock bands I know recorded on even with digital, the digital world, they recorded first on tape and then converted. They wanted to retain some of that feel, I guess. Absolutely, it's right. fantastic. Yeah. So, all right. Before I let you go, future of Matt Dusk. A couple more albums down the road, of course. What else? What are you planning on doing in the next five years? Quitting. <laughs> Just want to get out of this crap. Uh, you could be a co-host uh, of my show and enjoy talking with you. Yeah, people. perfect. We'll, yeah. we'll do it. We'll do a co-podcast. Yeah. Um, it, it, to be honest with you, uh, when, when the pandemic hit, it, it kind of really flipped my head because you know before that point, everything was like the one, three, and five year plan. And what I realized that when when all the restrictions came in and we had to cancel everything, that wasn't in any of my plans. Yeah, exactly. It was it was completely cut off. And what I realized is as I started going back in history, I realized that it's nice to have a direction, but honestly, those plans are just a guide. So when I look in the future now, honestly, it's like six months to 18 months. You're always in your trajectory to do something. But it's also, it's cool not to have that pressure of performing because I find when you take it off, you just do what we're doing now and we're coming to Myron. 
right? Yeah. That's all because of that. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been award-winning, multi-platinum-selling crooner, Matt Dusk, performing two shows in Myron's Cabaret Jazz at the Smith Center this Saturday, February 18th at 6 and 8.30 p.m. For ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com. And for everything about Matt Dusk, go to mattdusk.com and follow him on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And Matt, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah,